Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, PCBs have contaminated the town of Anniston, Alabama, and we'll find out what that has to do with schools here in Connecticut. Also, the town of Hoosick Falls, New York, has its own contamination crisis. But first, the Indian Point nuclear plant is 40 miles from New York's Central Park, and it's even closer to Danbury in Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's long been the source of controversy. Our recent leak of radioactive material has renewed the debate over the facility with opponents, including Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, arguing that facility can no longer operate safely. Supporters of Indian Point say its closure would deal a devastating blow to the New York City energy market and its ratepayers. So today, where we live, just how safe is Indian Point and how important is its power-generating role? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us first is Scott Waldman. He's an energy and environment reporter for Politico New York. He's been covering this as closely as anyone. And Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. First of all, before we get to this latest incident involving a radioactive leak, why don't you take us back through the history of Indian Point and, and tell us why it's been so controversial for such a long period of time? Well, it's about 40 years old, and uh, the plant, certainly because of its proximity to New York City, as you mentioned before, uh, has always been, I think, a source of concern and controversy, particularly for those that live nearby, as well as for folks down in New York City. Uh, recently, the plant has had a series of unscheduled shutdowns uh, for a variety of issues, and um, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, has been uh, very critical of the plant. Really, going back 10 years, he said that he wanted to close it before he was ever governor, before he was even attorney general. And uh, now that he is governor, he has certainly used uh, all of these unplanned shutdowns to uh, sort of further his uh, point that the plant it presents too much of a danger for New York City and that it needs to be shut down. I think one of his main concerns is you know, obviously the population density around the plant uh, and within, you know, a 30, 40 mile radius to evacuate that many people, you know, 17 million or so would take roughly 48 hours or more. Um, and it's, it's not enough time if there were some sort of major catastrophic event. And, of course, the idea of unplanned shutdowns also cuts against what some of the supporters of the plant would say is a reliable source of power. And maybe we'll get to that in just a moment. But talk about the danger posed by any of these things. I mean, when we hear about a transformer fire that forced the facility to shut down or even this this leak of of tritium contaminated water, just how dangerous do scientists say some of these incidents are to the population around there? Uh, well, the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission has basically said that all, none of these events were serious enough to warrant the plant's shutdown. Um, they've sort of given the plant the all clear uh, after each one. Um, of, of course, because there's been so many in the last year, they are also increasing their inspections. Uh, if you talk to somebody uh, like David Lockbaum at the Union for Concerned Scientists, who has many decades uh, in the nuclear industry, he's a nuclear engineer himself, he would say, uh, he would agree with Andrew Cuomo that this is probably evidence that the plant may not be safe. 
uh, somebody like that. I don't want to put words into his mouth, um, but he has raised concerns uh, in the past about some of these incidents. Uh, so really, I think it's it's sort of just been an ongoing battle over the years. Um, environmental groups have wanted the plant shut down for a long time, and they have a host of reasons. So have community groups, people that live nearby are concerned about it. Um, and then also you have folks that are, are pleased uh, – the amount of power that it generates uh, obviously is quite significant for New York City, about a fifth or a quarter of the power of New York City in the lower Hudson Valley. Um, so to, to take it offline uh, would just be, you know, many years worth of preparations would be necessary at this point. As we mark the five-year anniversary of the disaster at the Fukushima plant in Japan, I guess I'm wondering if anything substantively has changed since that terrible disaster, Scott, to make people think differently about Indian Point. Yeah, I mean, anytime anything like that happens, including September 11th, people really immediately turn to Indian Point and raise the safety flags again and say, is this a problem? And certainly uh, those type of concerns are to be taken seriously. Um, It's not just environmental groups. It's not just community groups. You have other folks that are raising issues about the plant. Um, But at the same time, you know, again, it's existed for many decades and uh, has not had any major problems. Um, you know, for some people, that's evidence that it's safe going forward. And for others, you know, they say just because it's been safe in the past doesn't mean it will be in the future. I think after Fukushima, there's been a tremendous uh, reevaluation of the nuclear industry in this country and the safety uh, protocols. If you look at Chernobyl years ago, uh, that plant was not built really to the same standards as the U.S. It may not be a great comparison, but uh, Fukushima was built to the same standards as a lot of the U.S. plants, so that that caused particular alarm in this country uh, when when you know it had serious problems, and uh, you know they're still going to be grappling with that for many years there. So I think uh, the federal Obama administration has come in and looked at safety concerns, sort of in more extreme situations in a lot of our nuclear facilities in the wake of Fukushima. They have not raised any flags that would warrant a plant being shut down as a result of those safety concerns. I think plants have put about 4 or $5 billion collectively into uh, you know, making them more safe uh, for the future. So, so there certainly has been uh, some changes to prepare for flooding and other events like that um, at these plants uh, and you know, make them more resilient to potential uh, extreme weather that we may be seeing more increasingly as a result of climate change. We're talking today with Scott Waltman. He's a reporter for Politico New York who's been covering the Indian Point nuclear plants. If you want to call us, 860-275-7266. Coming up in just a moment, we'll be hearing from someone who uh, opposes the plant and would like it to be shut down. Also, an official from Energy will join us in just a moment. One thing that's important, Scott, is you know, you're covering this as something that is just outside of New York that the, the governor there, Andrew Cuomo, is very, very concerned about. But this isn't really just a New York issue. As I said, it's about 35 miles from the Connecticut border. New Jersey is not too terribly far from Indian Point. Um, what are others in the region saying? Because essentially, this is a this is a federal issue. It's a New York issue, but it's also a Connecticut and a New Jersey and New Jersey issue as well. Uh, sure, and I think the same sort of arguments are going to be made, you know, within the same radius of the plant. Um, I think for a governor in another state, it's probably even easier to say that the plant should be shut down if they're not directly benefiting it from it. Um, you know, for the plant to shut down, it has a thousand well-paying jobs. You know, it's sort of uh, unprecedented for a uh, political figure like Governor Cuomo to call for the shutdown of a business that uh, employs a thousand people uh, and produces not only a significant amount of power but a significant amount of power um, that that is emissions, air emissions free. Um, so, 
it's it's a little more complex than just shutting it down. Um, there's there's issues of uh, you know if you do shut it down, you're going to have to, in the, at least in the short term, probably rely more increasingly on natural gas. There's already a plant being built in the vicinity um, that would run on natural gas and apply supply about basically half the amount of megawatts as Indian Point. Um, so that brings up a entirely different set of arguments, which is, uh, you know, the gas is coming from the fracking operations in Pennsylvania largely. You have to have more pipelines. You have to increasingly rely on fossil fuels. Do you want to turn your, uh, you know, energy grid more reliant on fossil fuels at a time when a lot of people are looking to renewable energy as the future? Uh, so, so this plant, the call for its shutdown is, is you know, with, with a host of issues, uh, I, I can see where those arguments come from, but I think it brings up a much larger conversation. And uh, here in New York, we're actually uh, focusing on keeping alive a lot of our nuclear facilities. A lot of nuclear plants around the country are struggling economically in light of competition from cheap natural gas. And uh, that's certainly the case here in New York. The governor is actively looking to keep every other plant in the state open um, by giving state incentives, potentially giving subsidies to all the facilities in New York, and that's uh, for other separate reactors. So it's an ongoing discussion, and certainly, you know, both sides have been dug in for quite some time with their various arguments. And, of course, New York decided not to get into the natural gas energy production business itself, saying it was going to ban fracking, unlike neighboring Pennsylvania, where an awful lot of the gas for this region is coming from right now. Before we, we turn to others, Scott, I just want to ask more about this tritium-contaminated water. I mean, what exactly do we know about the leak that happened, and what more details can you give us about just how potentially dangerous tritium is to people? Well, again, uh, I'm sort of relying, you know, somebody who tries to just hear all sides in this on the federal government here as, as a neutral party, and they've certainly been criticized in the past for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for not, you know, having enough safety protocols. But basically, uh, the tritium, which has leaked from, I think, about two-thirds of the plants uh, in the country at one time or another, um, it, it dissipates over time. It is not in any sort of uh, drinking water source at this point. It's just in the groundwater. Um, obviously, any sort of leak like this, any sort of radioactivity is going to be uh, a concern and should be a concern. It's being looked at closely, but at this point, um, there's no evidence that it's going to be in any drinking water supplies. I know Riverkeeper has raised the concerns. Well, eventually, it's going to make its way to the Hudson River, and uh, you know it could increase pollution there and nobody wants radioactivity in their water so uh, you know this is also being watched closely but in terms of like immediate danger to people uh, governor cuomo has sort of raised a red flag but you know certainly politics are at play in there and that alarm as well i've not heard the federal government raise those flags um, we have heard environmental groups and community groups uh, increase their concern and say that's further evidence uh, that the plant should be shut down and uh, you know there's a whole argument to be made there but in terms of uh, the Obama administration coming in and telling everyone to stay away from the tap water that has not happened uh, Scott, stand by for just a moment, because I am going to bring in Paul Galay. He's president of Riverkeeper. He recently wrote an op-ed in The New York Times opposing Indian Point, saying it should be shut down. Paul Galay, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be on the show. So why do you think Indian Point can no longer operate safely? Indian Point has passed its exploration date. It was designed over 50 years ago. Since then, generations of new technology have come and gone. This plant makes uh, dial-up modems and 
flip phones look positively modern. Uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is not an effective regulator. The president, uh, when he was campaigning in 2007, referred to it as a moribund agency that's completely the captive of the industry it's supposed to regulate. The plant has had uh, verging on 10 different uh, mishaps, malfunctions, and accidents just since last Mother's Day. The day the New York Times printed my op-ed, they had another incident. It was just, you couldn't make this stuff up. They lost power from off-site after they closed down one of the reactors. Their diesel generators went up. The diesel generators failed to a, to a faulty breaker. They then had to wait for their steam generators to catch up, and they had a temporary loss of cooling. They had an incident in December where they lost power to this plant because bird poop fell on it. You know, this plant is just too big to fail and too old to trust. So uh, let me ask you, is there something that can be done to upgrade this facility so that in your mind it can operate safely? Or are you saying that this plant is something that cannot operate safely no matter what upgrades happen, no matter what is done to uh, safeguard against some of the problems that you've already enumerated? No, the horse is out of the barn. This plant at this age, in this condition, with this many incidents, clogged drains, loss of power to the control rods that protect the nuclear reactor, uh, situations in which breakers are failing on a regular basis, bird poop shutting the plant down. They're all signs that at this age, the plant needs to be retired. You know, the nuclear renaissance everybody used to talk about before Fukushima was supposed to give us a new generation of plants and all these older plants will be retired. Well, guess what? No nuclear renaissance. And now the NRC and Entergy are just propping plants like this up because they don't want to lose the revenue. And when you have time, I'll tell you how the power is available to close Indian Point today. Well, and I would like to ask you about the power piece of this in just a moment, and we're going to be turning to a representative from Energy in just a couple moments. I would like to, before we get to the power generation piece of this, though, ask about the problem with the drinking water. Obviously, the governor of New York is concerned about this leak into the drinking water. Federal regulators, though, say that this is not a problem with any water supply. What do you say to the federal government essentially saying this tritium leak is not something we need to be worried about as far as people's water supply here? Actually, the federal government has admitted, Nuclear Regulatory Commission has admitted that this tritium-contaminated water will vent out into the Hudson like other water from the plant that has leaked from the spent fuel pools, which are currently overfilled with no place to send the spent fuel. And you not only have tritium, you also have cesium and strontium coming out of those pools and going into the Hudson. Basically, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Anderson said, well, don't worry about this. We don't drink this particular groundwater, and we'll just vent it out uh, into the Hudson like a sewer. And, and as you can imagine, uh, the idea of using the Hudson River as a, a radioactive sewer is not one we think is appropriate. And so we're doing everything we can to get folks to realize that these tritium leaks strontium leaks, the cesium leaks, they're just the tip of the iceberg. This plant is too old. There are too many things wrong with it, too many unplanned shutdowns. So, it's all of a piece. So, so Paul, let's, let's talk before we have to take a break about the power piece of this. One of the arguments that's made, not just by the company that runs the power plant, but by a lot of other people, 
uh, is that not only does Indian Point provide an awful lot of power for the region, power which you say can be replaced, but it provides a different type of power than some of the replacement power you might get. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier with Scott, uh, New York decided it was not going to get into the fracking business. It costs a lot of money and a lot of time to get pipelines uh, to get natural gas into the region to create new power. There's a lot of other ways to create power, but they are not, let's just say, carbon neutral. Uh, the state of New York is trying to produce energy for millions and millions of people in as clean a way as possible. I know that you're making the case that nuclear power at Indian Point is not clean, but what's a better alternative? If we burn natural gas, we're fracking for it. If we burn something else, that's not good for the environment. What do we do instead? You want clean, safe, sustainable power for the New York metro area. Don't get it from Indian Point. At this point, we have a significant reduction in power demand, just as measured by the grid operator in the last 12 months alone. They estimate that approximately 25% of the power generated by Indian Point will no longer be needed on a peak hot day in the summer of 2016. They, they dropped their predictions of peak demand by 4% in just one year. You look at the recent announcement that 90,000 homes in Westchester County are going to be supplied under a big bulk power agreement by Con Edison Solutions with energy at less expensive rates than wind, solar, and hydro. You look at the reduction in demand due to distributed solar energy, and you realize that the modest amount of natural gas that's involved in the short term in closing Indian Point is going to be replaced the minute you give the market signal that any point is closing. You can get a thousand new megawatts in hydropower from Canada. Riverkeeper was willing to support that proposal, and we did support that proposal because we know we have to help provide for replacement power. So you want carbon-free power in New York? You get it from hydro from Canada. You get it from the distributed solar and wind, you get it from these new power agreements that Con Ed is entering into, you don't need more natural gas, and you certainly don't need a 50-year-old new plant that keeps shutting down because birds poop on it. Scott Waldman, very quickly before we have to uh, take a break, I mean, what can you tell us about the power needs for the region? I mean, from what we're hearing from the Riverkeeper, if we shut down Indian Point, we got more than enough power to, to supply power to all the people who need it. What do you know about this? Uh, there's different opinions on that. You know, I'm certainly not going to debate with Paul, who has many years of experience and and uh, state experience looking at these kind of things. But um, in terms of hydropower coming from Canada, I know there's doubts that the the line can even be built because it would be so expensive it may not be economically worth it. Um, Paul brought up peak power, and that's an important concept here. You have to look at how many, you know, how how we use our power grid in the summer, in particular. Um, and, and when everybody turns on their air conditions, um, that's really what the grid is built around those days. So it is noteworthy if NISO is saying, if the uh, grid operator is saying we don't need, uh, you know, as much peak power, uh, and certainly uh, renewables are going to cut into that. I think probably the, the biggest argument um, for replacing Indian Point is, uh, you know, looking to offshore wind. We have tremendous potential here in New York, and uh, there's companies ready to basically start building uh, wind produces a lot more power than solar, and uh, we basically have one of the 
best areas for wind off of Long Island in the country, if not the world. Um, certainly, I think focus needs to be put there if we're really going to talk seriously about any point. I don't know that solar capacity, when you consider the amount of it that would be needed very close to New York City, will ever be adequate enough to replace any point. But if you're talking about large wind farms off of Long Island and even upstate in the Great Lakes or in the Adirondacks with enough you know, transmission lines to bring them down to New York mm. City, then you're really, you really can have a realistic plan for replacing a large part of the Neon Point's power with renewable energy. It, but, you know, this, we're talking yeah. decades here. And, of course, one of the things we always get to here when, when we talk about these issues is whether or not it's windmills and people's view lines or power lines or pipelines in their backyards trying to get these things through in one of the most populated and wealthy areas of the country can be hard. We're talking with Scott Waldman, a reporter for Politico New York, and Paul Galay, the president of Hudson Riverkeeper. When we come back, Mike Toomey from Entergy will join us. We'll take some of your questions as well at Where We Live on Facebook and Twitter. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Hope you can join us next Tuesday night for conversation about university foundations and freedom of information. We'll explore whether UConn Foundation, the fundraising arm of Connecticut's flagship university, should be more forthcoming with information about how they spend and raise their money. This debate has made their way its way to the legislature in recent years, which is considered overturning state law that made the foundation an exempt institution from the Freedom of Information Act. So that's our conversation. It's next Tuesday, 6.30 p.m., March 22nd, at the Lyceum in Hartford, Go to our Facebook page at Where We Live for more information. Today we're talking about the Indian Point nuclear plant and nuclear power in the state and also the region. Uh, Scott Wallman is a reporter for Politico New York. Paul Galay is president of Hudson Riverkeeper. And joining us now is Mike Toomey. Uh, Mike is the Entergy Vice President of External Affairs. Entergy is, of course, the company that operates Indian Point. And, Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Indian Point. Uh, Paul Galay and, and others, uh, including the governor of the state, have said it's time to shut Indian Point down. Why do you say it is not time to shut Indian Point down? Well, Indian Point is a safe, secure, and vital facility for New York and the metropolitan region. Um, I've listened to a lot of the discussion here this morning, and I've certainly read some of the material that uh, uh, Paul and others have written about it. But here are the facts. Uh, Indian Point Although the facility itself is more than 40 years old, most of the components in the facility are not 40 years old. We have spent over a billion dollars since we bought the plants in 2000 and 2001. We've made security enhancements. We've replaced reactor coolant pumps, transformers, valves, service water piping. We've done a main generator rewind. We've essentially replaced or repaired or upgraded all of the major components in the plant over the last 15 years, and except for the concrete containment uh, vessels on the outside and the, and the reactor vessel itself, nearly all of the material uh, and the important component parts that are in the plant are either new or within the last 10 or 15 years. And so the notion that the plant is 40 years old is really just a, um, uh, a myth that, that some of the opponents of the plant continue to try to perpetrate. And, you know, quite frankly, the plant is is regulated under a regime from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that is the most transparent and intrusive regime in the United States. Every issue, every minor issue, every issue that happens at the plant is reported, it's made public, and we operate under that regime with, uh, you know, full understanding that it doesn't matter what happens at this plant, even if it's the kind of an issue for example, if you have a transformer outage at a hydro plant 
it doesn't make the news. If you have a transformer outage at a gas fire plant, it doesn't make the news. It makes the news if it happens at Indian Point, and that's because we've got this um, open and um, invasive look at the plant, which is the way it should be. We've got three full-time resident inspectors at the plant that work for the NRC. They're independent. The NRC does 5,000 hours of inspections every year to ensure that the plant is safe. I I will say, though, yeah, uh, I I think as somebody in the news business, though, I think the reason it makes the news when something like that happens at a nuclear plant is, A, because it provides so much energy to the region, and also because of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima, and because people are worried about the worst possible thing that could happen at a nuclear plant. Now, we're not talking about the worst possible thing here, but we are talking about a series of mishaps, a transformer fire, um, a release of groundwater. And in what a lot of people ask, Mike, is if the plant has to continually be shut down for these unplanned shutdowns for various reasons, is it a safe and reliable source of energy if we have to keep shutting it down because these things happen? Well, absolutely. Those are questions that, that we need to answer. And I would say with respect to the transformer event, there are transformer outages at at power plants, not just nuclear power plants, but power plants all over the country. You know, the New York Power Authority owns hydroelectric plants in upstate New York that have had a series of transformer failures in the last few years. We've talked to them about their transformer issues. So that's not a nuclear issue. And with respect to the tritium in the groundwater, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, You know, we released uh, a relatively small amount of tritium uh, into the groundwater, it did not affect any drinking water source because there are no wells on the site, and you know it will eventually make its way in a very diluted form into the Hudson River. But what's important to note there is that the Hudson River is not a drinking water source for any community near Indian Point. So the suggestion that this could somehow affect drinking water is not true. And you know I'll give Riverkeeper credit. You know, they have been very vigilant in trying to defend the river. You know, you have uh, raw sewage, automotive fluids, fertilizers, pesticides, TCBs from General Electric plants that operated in the 20th century. You've got um, uh, issues related to uh, sturgeons who are being killed by the work on the Tappan Sea Bridge. And Riverkeeper's been very clear to, to raise their hand and and you know, make sure that people are paying attention to those issues. But but shouldn't but we shouldn't we be concerned? Could, to, yeah. Let me just when, sure, when sure, it comes sure. to Indian Point. Yeah. The issue is, you know, they have no expertise in nuclear plant operations, no expertise in electric system planning, no expertise in emergency planning. Um, you know, they don't have any real capability to to provide more than uh, complaints about these issues. And we've got administrative legal proceedings. Uh, you know, when Riverkeeper's called upon to actually submit evidence on some of these issues, uh, they, they can't show up with any experts that will testify on some of the issues that they are, are, say are important to them. But the experts, the NRC is an independent set of experts. They're highly qualified um, individuals who go to work every day to ensure that the American public is safe. And they do an exhaustive review of Indian Point, and every other nuclear facility. And they would not let that plant run if it weren't safe. We wouldn't try to run the plant if it weren't safe. But shouldn't we be concerned about radioactive material being released into the Hudson River, a river which, as you say, has been for years contaminated by a number of other uh, factories, plants, 
industries. It is a river that has been troubled by release of various discharges over time. Should we not be concerned about the release of radioactive material into that river? Well, you know, the, the real issue here is that radiation is a, is a bit of a scary word. Okay, but people receive about 50% of their uh, annual radiation dose just from background sources, just from walking around uh, on, on planet Earth. And about 48% of, of their radiation comes from medical procedures and about 2% from consumer products. The, the operation of nuclear plants, including Indian Point, accounts for less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the radioactive exposure that people receive. And the Hudson River, by the time a, a small amounts of tritium are diluted and released into the Hudson River, there's no effect on population. There's no effect on the fish. There's no effect on plants. There's no effect on anything. And I think that, you know, one of the concerns that we have is that instead of a rational conversation about the scientific evidence, we often have political and uh, other activities that tend to try to exaggerate these these consequences. I mean, for example, I know, I, I've gone to their website, Riverkeeper does a lot of fundraising by trying to frighten people about Indian Point. And, and so these things often are not put in context. You know, just the normal plant operations of any nuclear plant is going to release small trace amounts of radiation. And, and that's a byproduct of that activity. But again, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of the radiation that we're all exposed to every day. Um, Paul Galay, a quick thought before we have to let you both go. John, i got to say, most of what Mike says is wrong. There are more components in this plant that cannot be replaced than possibly could be replaced. Three miles of buried piping, leaking spent fuel pools that are so full they can't even see the leaks, three exemptions from fire safety rules, faulty insulation on the cables leading to the reactors, broken pumps, blocked sumps. The idea that they've replaced the majority of the components is just an untruth. There's been an enforcement drop at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission of 80% since the late 90s because the industry controls that agency. The evacuation plan for Indian Point, according to George Pataki's hand-picked expert, is a paper plan for a paper emergency, an accident that Indian Point would destroy the livability of a swath of land from the plant down to the George Washington Bridge. And, 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 and Paul, time, and I'm, yeah, and, and Paul. For India, you yep. Mike, you had your time. Now I'll have a little bit of time, and then you can respond if there's time after that. No, and, and this, is John, gotta, this is John saying, just, know, just finish I, up if you would, please, Paul. Thank you. The long story short, Indian Point is got to close. we got to close Indian Point before it closes up. The... And, Paul, I'm going to let you go there. Paul Galay is president of Hudson Riverkeeper. Mike Toomey is uh, the vice president of external affairs for Energy. Uh, thank you both for joining us in this conversation. I'm going to turn to Jenny Stalovich. Uh, she's a reporter who's been covering uh, in Miami uh, the Turkey Point nuclear plant. I'm reading the, the top line of a story you recently wrote, Jenny, which says a radioactive isotope linked to water from power plant cooling canals has been found in high levels in Biscayne Bay, confirming suspicions that Turkey Point's aging canals are leaking into the nearby national park. Well, that's fairly frightening. Jenny Selovich, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, thanks for having me. So what else can you tell us about this? 
Well, so um, I, I'm not sure how your system works, but down here, uh, Turkey Point um, sits on the edge of Biscayne Bay. Uh, it's a power plant that includes five units with two nuclear reactors that use this massive uh, cooling canal system to, 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 to keep the, the reactors cool. Um, this is a system that's so big, it covers more than 5,000 acres. You can see it from space. Um, it initially was dug um, as a way to keep that nuclear reactor water out of the bay. It was supposed to be a closed-loop industrial waste system. Um, originally, the water was less salty than the bay, but over the years, um, it's become saltier and heavier, um, and so it's pushing down. Um, it's caused two things to happen. Uh, the first thing was a growing saltwater plume, an underground saltwater plume uh, began to spread and kind of migrate from, from underneath the, the canals. Um, they knew from monitoring wells in the area that had it had migrated west, um, but then just recently they discovered that it also appears to be migrating east and turning up in the bay. Mm. And so this is all, of course, tied into the fact that, um, well, where, where we are up here, as we look at Indian Point, we're talking about it, and we didn't really mention this in an earlier conversation about being on a fault line. It's 45 uh, miles from New York City Central Park. Uh, it's right on the Hudson River. Uh, some of the issues you're dealing with have specifically to do with the fact that the Miami area, the areas that is served by this power plant, is really under a lot of change due to climate change and rising sea levels. I mean, how much is that the problem at Turkey Point? Well, the the problem at Turkey Point um, has more to do with um, the temperatures of the canal. Um, I'm sorry, Jenny, are you still there? Can you I hear me? Yes, uh, yes, I can. I'm sorry. I, I, I clicked the wrong button there. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so so the, the climate change issue here really has to do with sea rise. Um, we're dealing, um, you know, with, with it's inching up, but the projections um, over the next century are about three feet. Turkey Point sits on the edge of the bay. Um, the question is, as that sea, as those sea levels rise, there's a problem with saltwater intrusion. If Turkey Point is already exacerbating saltwater intrusion, um, sea rise is just going to make it worse. Um, the the uh, There's a, a well field that lies just inland that supplies all the fresh water for the Florida Keys. It's the only supply for the Florida Keys. So I think that's what's got a lot of people concerned. And a last thing for you here, how much of a political issue has this become in the Miami region? Um, it's pretty political because Florida Power and Light um, exerts a lot of political influence. They contribute a lot to, to campaigns. Um, part of the problem and criticism from a lot of the environmentalists is that the stake has had too cozy a relationship with FPL, so they're not regulating them um, kind of strictly enough. Jenny Stelovich is a staff writer for the Miami Herald who's been covering the Turkey Point plant. Jenny, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to turn back now to Scott Waldman from Politico New York, who we've been talking uh, with about uh, Indian Point. But there's another story in your region, Scott, you've been covering. Um, a lot of attention, of course, has been paid to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, but there's another water crisis in Hoosick Falls, New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo just visited the town for the first time. It's about 100 days after the crisis began. On one hand, he wants to shut down this nuclear plant. What's he been saying and doing about this problem in Hoosick Falls? Well, uh, the state has been extensively criticized uh, for the reaction here. They basically uh, were assuring people uh, in Hoosick Falls that it was okay to drink their water. There's a chemical, it's known as 
PFOA, um, and it's used in the manufacturing of, of products, nonstick products like, like Teflon. Um, it's in the water. It's in there in a dangerous level, and it's still being studied extensively by the EPA. Um, but basically, uh, the levels are above the EPA limits. Uh, the state had different limits that were much, much higher and assured people that it was okay to drink for more than a year, even though the EPA had a recommendation of 400 parts per trillion. The state's was 50,000 parts per trillion. Um, so then the state reversed itself uh, a few months ago, and now people in town are very scared and worried about their water and wondering why the state told them it was okay to drink it for a year when uh, it was actually pretty dangerous to it's even been found in a second town nearby called Petersburg, where a similar manufacturing facility was located. Um, so, so basically, it's a, it's an ongoing crisis. I think it's going to be discovered in more states. It's already been found in Vermont nearby in North Bennington, and there's even a factory in New Hampshire that's now uh, being traced to the similar pollution in water sources there. Scott, so it's, well, it's, and I'm going to have to let you go, go, Scott, but I appreciate your reporting on all of this stuff, and we'll continue letting our listeners know about what's going on in Hoosick Falls and also around. Indian Point. Scott Waldman is a reporter for Politico New York. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to turn to our reporter, David DeRoche. He's been covering PCB contamination in schools around Connecticut, but his reporting has taken him to the town of Anniston, Alabama. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it's our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. Join me and Colin McEnroe as we discuss some of the big stories from this week's news, including the results of the big primary day today. Right now, though, I want to welcome in my colleague David DeRoche. He has been covering education for WNPR and also following the story of PCBs in schools in Connecticut and around the country. Now, last year, he told us about a multi-part investigation into PCBs that he conducted, a product that was banned back in 1979, but it still exists in many thousands of schools and other buildings nationwide. In fact, it's hard to know just how many schools could contain PCBs. It's even harder to know what the long-term health impacts are. Here's what we do know. Government agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency and the World Health Organization have found PCBs to be toxic and a health risk for children and workers. So David's here to tell us about a recent reporting trip to a place, David, that's, I I suppose, kind of the ground zero for the PCB battle in America, a town called Anniston, Alabama. So first of all, welcome back to the show. Thanks, John. What took you to Anniston? So Anniston is where Monsanto created PCBs from about 1935 until they phased them out in 1971. They moved their operations to another facility. So for decades, they were making PCBs in Anniston. um, And in recent court cases have uh, uncovered that they actually release PCBs into the ground, into the waterways nearby, and really contaminated the town. Like you said, it really is ground zero for the story because it's where all PCBs in the United States were manufactured here and then at another facility, um, I believe it was in, in Indiana. And of course, Monsanto is the big multinational company. It's a big agribusiness company. PCBs was their business for quite some time. They weren't the only company that made PCBs, but they've been at the center of really the PCB controversy in Aniston and other places. That's right. And it led to this uh, lawsuit in the in the 90s. So what happened was they realized that some of the properties nearby were contaminated. So they started quietly buying up houses around their plant. Um, a lawyer got wind of this and filed a suit against Monsanto in the early 90s. And, and over about 10-year span, they fought this in court. And uh, right after the lawsuit was filed, 
They actually spun off their chemical division, named it Solutia, and then short, uh, shortly thereafter, Solutia declared bankruptcy and was bought out by a company called Eastman, which still owns it today. So it's, it's been this really kind of complicated legal battle. Um, it was settled in 2002. Two lawsuits were combined. They settled for $700 million. But this was uh, you know, f- uh, 14 years ago. And it's still today that people feel like they haven't um, have justice done. It was uh, The lawsuit covered about 22,000 people. So um, once it was said and done, a very few people feel like there's been justice. And of course, you know, as we'll, we talk through the story that, that you've been reporting on, the PCBs that are found in school buildings, say in Connecticut, are found at very low or moderate levels. These are the sorts of things that people should indeed be concerned about because health officials have, have warned about this. But indeed, you're talking about levels in the ground and the groundwater in places like Anniston, Alabama, that are just huge. I mean, you're talking about enormous amounts of contamination. So did you get a chance to talk to anybody who was able to guide you through some of the intricacies of this of this situation there? Well, definitely a lot of the community members um, have been you know, very outspoken about what's happened there. But one of the women I did speak with was a professor at the University of Alabama. Her name was Ellen Spears. And she's written a book called um, Baptized in PCBs. And she took about 10 years to write this book. And uh, this is what she had to say. People think that PCBs are a problem of the past. They're not. They're very much with us. And it's not just in this place, which has been so egregiously violated in Anniston, where they were manufactured. Um, But most of us around the globe are carrying a little bit of these chemicals around in our bodies, and some people have more exposures than others. And when she says, David, that people think that they're a problem of the past, it's because the product was essentially banned back in 1979, not supposed to be made anymore in the United States. We have learned that it certainly is made other places around the world. But the legacy of PCBs goes back to all these buildings that have used PCBs for decades before 1979. That's right. And it turns out that also PCBs are um, are actually created from some chemical processes that happen accidentally today still. So um, and we find that they don't disintegrate in the environment, that they are persistent and they are extremely toxic. And one of the things she also talked about was this idea that, and you mentioned it before, how there's um, controversy over these long-term impacts. And she talked about that, that this controversy has been fueled in part by um, science that's been created by the industry to try to manufacture doubt. And this is one of the things she touched on. I think that that the efforts to deploy science in service of creating doubt about the hazards of chemicals do have an effect. On the other hand, I think local people are pretty savvy and very skeptical about the claims. They have the personal experience with the illnesses, with the respiratory ailments, with the smells and explosions that go on at plants. And so you met with some local people uh, who were telling you some of their stories, and there are people in Anniston, Alabama, who have gotten very sick. There are, and, and this is where it gets kind of difficult because they tend to blame every illness that exists on PCBs, and, it's, and, and it is hard to really know whether or not they have actually had this direct correlation to all these illnesses. But everybody has a story of some strange cancer, of some strange illness, of uh, deformed children, of miscarriages. In their minds, it's, it seems to be caused by PCBs. Another guy I, met, I spent some time with was Curtis Ray. He was a retired foundry worker, and he's chairman of the Anniston Health Clinic Advisory Board. He took me around town and showed me the the real ghost town um, that's in it is West Anniston. The western part of the town is um, is mostly African American residents, and there most of them live at or below the poverty line. So he, he's driving me through town, and this is one of the things he had to say: "It's unreal how this stuff have come through this city and just uh, actually destroyed the communities." 
Uh, the city itself is all right. But homes and people that live in their homes and all these people dying at the age of 40, it's just ridiculous. The more young folk dying than the older people. And uh, that's where we're at. Mm. Uh, that's the voice of Curtis Ray. He's one of the people that uh, David DeRoche talked with on a recent reporting trip to Anniston, Alabama. David has been covering PCBs in Connecticut and around the country for us. And he joins us here on Where We Live. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad story. And from what I've read about the town, it was set up as, as almost like a model city not too terribly many years ago. And now he's saying this is a city that's been devastated by the problems that have been left behind by PCBs. And the health clinic that he's a part of is actually shuttering its doors after 11 years. It was supposed to only be open for 10, but they managed to stretch it out to 11 years. And they're really worried that um, with that with that gone, that a lot of people who have been getting medical uh, treatment at this clinic are not going to have access to these services. They, As part of the settlement agreement through the lawsuit, they were given access to this clinic. So the clinic closing is, is a concern for a lot of people. And also, one of the things that seems to be a real challenge is that the people themselves, you know, a lot of them, John, they, they went to segregated schools. Um, they didn't have the best education. Um, you know, Mr. Ray himself, I asked him to read something to me that was a court record, and it was clear that he was struggling with that. And he's somebody who's leading the people who and they rely on him for his advice. So they're a community that really struggles um, with understanding what's happened to them and really come to grips with how to move forward. You met some other folks, including a, a lifelong Anderson resident, a mother and a grandmother whose uh, family has been deeply affected by cancer. Again, something that has been reported quite widely. Tell us about her. That's right. So Sylvia Curry lives at the bottom of this hill. She has a creek running next to her house. People, there are, uh, the homes across from her home are abandoned. People have either died or moved and have never come back. They're boarded up. Um, she says that PCBs were found here but not there. Everybody's very confused about how they could find PCBs in one yard and not the next yard. Turns out that a lot of people actually used fill dirt that was given to them free from industries around the area that actually had PCB materials in it that they actually put in their own backyards. So this is dirt that they were getting for free, and it, it contaminated their their yard their and their water. That's correct. So uh, one of the things Ms. Curry talked about, she grew up in West Anderson, has lived there her whole life, and uh, she just really talks about how just sad it is, the state of the town right now. Well, this used to be a beautiful place. Flowers. I can't even plant flowers. They don't grow. Gardens won't grow. No, won't nothing. Houses was all in here. They had to, all the people are dead. Everybody is dead. My husband, he died with a rare cancer. I've had cancer twice. Then I have a thyroid problem. I have a heart problem. I mean, just sickness. Just sickness. So, I guess we just... <laughs> It's just probably waiting on us for all of us to die out because everybody is gone just about out in here. Mm. What has Monsanto said about all this? Because obviously this company is being seen as the root of the problem by the members of the town. As you and others have reported on, they have gone to quite some trouble to try to, whether it's buy up land that maybe was contaminated or try to work on getting science out there that, that helps to support their case. But what is it they're saying about claims like this one coming from people in, in Anniston? 
Well, they really continue to argue the case that PCBs are not as harmful as other scientific studies seem to point out. They argue that the only thing that PCBs have been proven to cause is this thing called chloracne, which is basically a skin rash. And they argue that, and in, in, in Aniston particularly, that they've paid their, their, their settlement, they paid their $700 million, and that the case has been settled from their end. But people in town are concerned. They really want to know whether or not this health clinic will continue to stay open, whether or not it'll continue to be funded by the industry. In Sylvia Curry, she talked about the fact that getting the story of Aniston, Alabama out, given the settlement, given the fact that they're a poor community, this has been something that's been a struggle for them. That's right. Sylvia uh, addressed the troubles that they're having, really just trying to get that story out because the, the rest of the world seems to think that uh, the story is over when, in fact, it really is uh, still a problem there. We've been trying to get this out. Just couldn't get no help. I mean, you know, and it's bad. And it's depressing, too, to live like this. You know, knowing that there is money that was for us and we can't do no better. So... Maybe one day, I hope to live to see it, you know, I can move, get me another house, get rid of this one, and move. So this story that you're doing, David, is part of an investigation into PCBs nationwide, including right here in Connecticut. I should say there's also been some some recent news about this before I let you go. The New York Times has reported on some controversial pending legislation that could help protect Monsanto against future legal claims. What can you tell us about that? What happened is there are two bills pending in uh, Congress. The House has a bill and the Senate has a bill trying to overhaul the Toxic Substances Control Act. And there was a paragraph in there that um, some critics say shields Monsanto from any future liability when it, in regards to PCB cleanup. Um, Monsanto says that it doesn't do that, that they, and they argue that they didn't ask for any specific favors. Um, but it's, it's very clear that it, it would help them. Um, they've actually used it in, in the defense in a lawsuit that the law would provide them freedom from liability. So uh, they are powerful. I mean, they, they spend a lot of money in court. They're very litigious. There are several lawsuits around the country against Monsanto from cities uh, like Seattle, San Francisco. Um, there are school districts that are suing them. They have a very strong presence in the legal system, and they've been fighting this issue for a very long time. And with this legislation, a lot of people are really concerned that it will be even more difficult to hold them accountable. You said that school districts have sued Monsanto. Isn't Hartford, Connecticut, one of those one of those districts? That's correct. So Hartford is suing for Clark Elementary School, which was closed in the late 2014. They had set aside $5 million to renovate Clark for PCBs, and they realized that that simply wasn't enough. And now they're actually planning on demolishing the school. And that has a lot of community members really upset. Uh, David DeRoche uh, covers education, but also this uh, problem with PCBs in schools and other buildings nationwide. He's been doing reporting on this, uh, including in Anniston, Alabama. We'll find out more information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. David, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, John. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Heather Brandon is the digital editor and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live. We'll be right back.